Before we start this episode, I'd like to thank MSI and StormFX, as well as Maxon, for supporting the creative community and helping make this episode possible. My name's Matthew Packwood, and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode, I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation, and visual effects artists. Today, I'll be chatting with the outstanding director, motion designer, and CG artist, Raul Marx. Raul has worked on some of the most well-known television series, including Westworld, The Crown, and American Gods. He's also worked on top gaming franchises, including Halo and Far Cry 6, as well as working with some of the best-known brands, including Adidas, MTV, and Louis Vuitton. He's also been nominated for both Emmys and BAFTA Awards, co-winning Emmys for his work on the opening titles of True Detective and Man in a High Castle. Throughout this extended episode, we'll discuss Raoul's outstanding passion projects, Spring and Semi-Permanent, his career development and his creative partnership with Patrick Clare. We will also analyse in detail three of his best projects. I recommend that you go to the Masters of Motion website and review his work prior to listening to this episode. It will make your experience much more rewarding. Alrighty, let's get into it. Thanks very much for taking the time and coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. My pleasure. It's good to be here. What has been the key attributes or personality traits that has made you so successful in your career? I have sort of always worked on my own and I guess that kind of can often give you a sense of inferiority because you don't know how things are done and so you always think that other people are doing them properly. Yeah. Uh, so you can kind of overcompensate and maybe work harder because of that. That's cool. An interest in, in creative endeavors and and that inferiority complex on your shoulders can, can help you do well. So do you think work ethic? I think, yes, I think having a good work ethic is, is pretty important. But I mean, I, I think it comes from being really interested in what you're doing. It doesn't, shouldn't feel so much like work. How do you sort of progress when you've got two weeks before the deadline and you're under the pump? What's your work ethic like there? Yeah, well, it's not something I really want to promote. Because it shouldn't always be the case, but I mean, uh, we had a few projects on recently where we had very tight deadlines and I moved my studio home so I would just work till 2am every night and uh, and raising a small kid at the same time is quite hard. But um, yeah, I try not to get distracted. I try to be quite uh, focused in the productivity. Yeah. It's very easy to get lost in the weeds when you're doing design. You can become kind of focused on some particular detail or you can be doing something purely for your own enjoyment because it's sort of a fun problem to solve. Whereas 
you need to step back occasionally and just think about the most effective way to, to solve that problem. Cool. So what advice would you give to young motion designers who would like to work on high-end opening titles? To do that kind of work and the budget that you would want so that you could do it properly tends to be on US television. Yeah. I'm sure there are people doing it in Australia and other places as well, but it, I guess there's a benefit to, to working in larger markets. And to do that, you can either be really lucky or you move to Los Angeles basically seems to be the other option. Yeah. Um, or, or potentially New York, but I think predominantly Los Angeles. And then go work at one of the studios that does this kind of work would be the most straightforward way to do it. Not an easy task, but, you know, obviously you'd need a, a good portfolio as well. Well, it is possible. Like, there is people who go to LA and work there. Absolutely. It's just, it's, it's not an option for everybody, I guess. Yeah, well, the green card thing's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. What TV, movies, music, magazines or books inspired you when you were growing up? I had pretty hippie parents. I don't know how to describe them. You know, of of that 60s generation, I guess. I grew up in Fremantle, which is a bit of a hippie town. Yeah. And I didn't have a... We didn't have a television while I was growing up until I was about, I don't know, 12 or 13. We went to my grandparents' place and watched Star Wars as a child and that had a, a very big impact on me because I hadn't seen anything like it. I hadn't seen, even really watched TV up to that point. So sort of blew my mind as a little kid. That's cool. We snuck over to our neighbours once and I watched uh, Alien on a sort of quite a scary VHS dubbed version of it so it was all crackly and noisy and we watched it on a small little television and that was terrifying. So, What other science fiction movies did you like? I actually quite like June, um, David Lynch's version of June. Yeah, I thought it was great. I thought those worm scenes, and like I remember getting that from the video shop and being pretty excited. But yeah, it was a big flop apparently. Yeah, I think at the time um, Lynch was considered to be sort of the next big kind of mainstream Hollywood director. He had done a few arty films and was going to go mainstream, and then I think that film, the production was so complicated that it... um, set off the, the trajectory for the rest of his career into, into going back into kind of art house, more esoteric cinema. Yeah. And I, I really like the sound. It's got Brian Eno doing the music, which was another one of those musicians that I heard a lot when I was a kid. Yeah. I think uh, Giga's Alien and you know, Ridley Scott, obviously a big influence, uh, along with Blade Runner. You know, all those classics, I guess. Yeah, that period was great. The Thing, Aliens, even Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Most of those films you just mentioned, I've only seen in the last three or four years. I kind of um, I had uh, my go-to films from my childhood, and I just sort of revisit them. And, and I've only recently started, I guess, exploring more in, in that era, I guess. Yeah. I enjoyed them, but yeah, like they don't have the same nostalgia hit for me. Did you go to the video shop and hang out and like look for the old movies? Absolutely, yeah. You know, I loved old VHS covers, and um, we'd go, go with Dad, and we'd spend ages sort of debating what to hire from the local jumbo video store. I think it was called. What about music? It was just an album I rediscovered the other year, and uh, by Laurie Anderson. It has that song "Oh Superman." I don't know if you know on it. When I listen to it now, it uh, it taps into kind of similar emotions as and ideas that you're kind of wanting to to get into your work. So yeah, it seems relevant somehow. What sort of television do you enjoy and recommend? Devs was a, a really good series, which is uh, Alex Garland, if you know him. When did you discover motion design in 3D and how did you become passionate about it? 
maybe I'll go way back to go to 4866 to 66. It was expensive and it was a big thing for my parents to buy me when I was maybe 14. Cool. And they had a thing called Aldus Photo Styler. It was just like an early version of Photoshop. And that was great fun to play with. I did something about the idea that you could draw a million things a million times and, you know, you weren't running out of paper. It was sort of, it was limitless, I guess. What inspired you to move into 3D? When did it happen? And what software did you use? I think I always found 3D kind of interesting. Yeah. Maybe the end of high school or like the first year of uni. Yeah. And and cinema was the program used. Always. Yeah. Briefly, describe your career path from leaving uni until now. Did a Bachelor of Multimedia Design at Curtin University in WA. And then I uh, worked in book publishing at a place called Square Peg Design in Perth. And then decided to travel and did some work in Scotland, in Edinburgh, at a company called Hicksville. We moved down with them to London. Uh, there I was doing sort of film advertising, basically, and sort of DVD covers, that type of thing. And then moved back to Sydney, uh, became a freelance motion designer. Did that for a number of years, and then connected up with Patrick Clare. Well, we worked with Antibody at first, and then we became part of Elastic, and now we're Antibody again. Yeah. Now I'm a main partner with Antibody and Pat. Cool. All right. Over the years, which projects do you think were the most successful and satisfied you the most? True Detective, as as the most successful, it was the first title sequence I'd ever worked on and was very lucky to be associated with a show that was right at that, that sort of pinnacle of sort of this, this new era of television becoming kind of sophisticated and respected. Yep. How did you feel when you were working on it? It was terrifying back then because it was not um, not something I'd done before yeah. and you don't really have any sort of roadmap for how that's going to play out and you don't know what the standards are you're trying to hit, I guess. So you just try to make it as, as good as you can. And was it exciting? Yeah, very exciting. <laughs> yeah. um, cool. <laughs> you know, but... <laughs> okay. All right. Tell us a little bit about your less exciting work. Sure. Spent years doing... Um, Book design, um, you know, laying out books about mangroves and stuff for, you know, um, annual reports for superannuation companies. It's, yeah. you don't always anticipate you're going to get to work on exciting things like film and television. Yeah. For me, at least, there's a big interest in that area. So, yeah, it was very exciting getting a chance to, to work on that. At the start of my career, I got to do a couple of like high end national television series and it was great. I thought that was going to go on forever. Mm. And the industry sort of changed in Australia and the budgets become low and they become shorter and not as important. Mm. What's your thoughts on international opening titles? They have a sort of cyclical nature, I think, in that things come in and out of fashion. Yeah. Actually, for a few years now, I think we've started to see television evolve what they expect with titles, particularly with um, the streaming platforms. It's sort of a title sequences makes less sense. Yep. For example, we did some titles for Lovecraft Country and we have sort of evolving the formula a little bit where we have a, a shorter title sequence, but it's bespoke for each episode and it speaks to the, the ideas and themes of that particular episode. We're changing, evolving with the medium, but things will come, always come in and out of favour. So what was the next one after True Detective? We did that and then we'd quite soon on the back of that, we did Halt and Catch Fire before True Detective was even out. Yep. And they sort of just came out sequentially 
uh, in the public, but we'd sort of got to do Halt and Catch Fire before we knew that True Detective was going to do well. And Halt and Catch Fire also did well, got another Emmy nomination. So it was sort of uh, lucky that um, before we were tested, we kind of found out that we, you know, we were sort of hitting the mark. It's funny how the success of the show affects the quality of the title sequence. Yeah. Because True Detective was such a cultural impact, it blew that title sequence up to another level. If people are excited about what they're about to watch and it has strong resonant themes in it that people can relate to or find moving, that's giving us so much more to work with. Yep. We're going to pull from the same pond there, I guess. The most satisfying project? I might say semi-permanent in a way because I'd worked quite hard and it had been, you know, an intense period of a year or two working with Elastic. Yep. You know, I'd sort of learned a lot over that period and, and wanted to use those things for sort of things that were in my own head and got a chance to take a month off and, and do these titles for semi-permanent. That was a massive project for one person. Hmm. It was more satisfying because you were doing it by yourself or just because you were happy with the result? I think it was because there was a lot of themes and ideas I wanted to play around with and, uh, you know, you, they'd been building up over time and they'd sort of been in the back of my head, so it was just satisfying getting that out of my head I think and using some of those things you'd learned over the previous years you have an image in your head or an idea of some sort the translation of that to the screen or to the page yeah. is the struggle and if you if you do it well that's where it gets satisfying it was a beautiful piece and you could see it's like a labor of love I, I was impressed by it when it came out and Thank, thanks yeah. <laughs> that's all right have you had any failures in your career Many. <laughs> um, there's been millions of times where, yeah, I've overwritten a file or I've something rendered and it's crashed or I've sent a job to somebody else to work on and haven't checked in properly to see what's happening and, you know, run out of time and things like that. But um, we've done things that, you know, got halfway through and then got cancelled and you spend a lot of time thinking about whether it was something you did or didn't do or yep. sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. So what's the key learning that you take away from one of these issues? Step back from what you're making and trying to keep, always keep an eye, the broader context of how your work's going to be perceived and, and viewed by people is yep. uh, a good thing to do. You can be trying to please yourself or please some kind of very minute thing or you're trying to solve some particularly small problem and, and you can lose grasp of what's how this is going to be perceived in the broad audience that can lead to lots of problems basically what was the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career in terms of it being hard i don't know i mean there's lots of things like trying to get the nuances of editing is, is difficult yeah what a big impact editing can have on the way that you cut a piece together and understanding something that's a bit of a dark art because there isn't really a an obvious example for why something works or doesn't. It just doesn't, doesn't work. I guess, like, been developing CG skills over the years, getting better at those things, I guess, but they're not... It never felt hard, if you know what I mean. It was just... The learning along the way is kind of part of the enjoyable part of the process. So why did you move to, like, the UK and Edinburgh and stuff, and then why did you then move to Sydney? What was your reasoning behind all that and, yeah... I quite liked my girlfriend, um, and so that was all the reason I needed. She she uh, she wanted to travel. She's always been um, a great explorer. 
wanted to get her master's. Well, she wanted to do it in Edinburgh, so we went to Edinburgh, and, and she worked at a gallery there, and then uh, she got some interesting um, jobs down at Art Angel, I believe, in London. So we moved down to London. It was sort of at the same time that the company I was working for had a place down in London, so it was fine for me to move down there as well. And were you passionate about it in this period? Like, you know, it was interesting work to do, but it was also a good way to make sure I had some rent so that I could go out on the weekends. I was really into, like, music at the time. And um, so, I, you know, I'd be up every night, but not doing design. I'd be, like, trying to mix dance tracks, you know, or something for, like, 4 a.m. kind of music. So you weren't career-driven because a lot of people would look at you and think, oh, to get where you've done and work on the projects that you've had, then, you know, you must have been really driven. Not, not particularly there at that point. No, I mean, I, I, it's interested me. I just wasn't totally dedicated to it. But I don't know if anyone really is in their early twenties. You know, like I wanted to go out and party. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> there, there must be similarities between music and motion design. Same instincts, you know, like the instincts behind wanting to make music. Like I was passionate about that. I think I just transferred that interest from music because work suddenly got interesting into into work. You know, I was still up late making things. I just swatched, swapped the passion to a different area, I guess. And why do you think you get so focused and passionate about your work? I was an only child, so I think I just had to fill a lot of time by entertaining yourself. So yeah. focuses can shift and change. Who knows, it might change again in a few years. Like John Malkovich, I think, quit acting and wanted to get into making suits. <laughs> so he became a suit did he maker. Come, I, think he he's go, I think he's gone back. Yeah, so he was okay. just in the young boat. But yeah. <laughs> so, so how was your girlfriend going with her career and what inspired her to move back to Sydney? She got a, an amazing position as the Nick Waterloo inaugural fellow at the Biennale of Sydney. So she moved to Sydney for that and I've just been following her around the globe uh, for the last decade, basically. What was the transition like from going from graphic design to motion design? Well, I was really lucky, actually, because I was still doing a little bit of work for Hicksville remotely. And yep. I got a Mac Pro, uh, the old cheese grater tower, which, believe it or not, I'm still using as my main computer. That's cool. They just made it very good back then. They're modular enough that you could keep updating them. Yep. Had it for close on 10 years now. Well, I've got a cheese grater too, but it's still going. I've hacked it to pieces. It's like there's, um, it doesn't have any sides on it. There's a power supply with a paperclip in it on the top of it so I can run GPUs and I'm <laughs> stuck on old versions of OS X. Cool. Uh, let's go back now to when that computer was new. Sure. And how did you transition from being a graphic designer to a motion designer? And how did you market yourself to get some work? I just start doing a few little experimental videos and whack those all into a um, into a reel, which seemed to be the kind of way to promote yourself at that point. So you did some spec projects and then put them in a reel? Not even the full piece, just like the shots that you might cut from that and put it into a reel. Clever. And then? Put it on Vimeo and probably sent it to anyone that said they're a motion design company. A guy called Mark Blondell, lovely guy in Sydney, and did some motion graphics work with him. Cool. You always think there's a proper way to do things, but everyone's sort of making it up as they go along, and I was very much doing the same. 
Well, I think that's what I like about you is that you're sort of hacking it together and you're doing it and you're getting good results, which is pretty cool. Jack of all trade, master of none. Well, I wouldn't say that. But what I would say is that you then went on to make the spring uh, animation. Mm. Tell us about your short film, Spring. Probably about a minute and a half. It's a, a short kind of experimental piece that kind of plays with the imagery around the Arab Spring. Yep. Uh, during the first um, Iraq Kuwait War. War, the Gulf War, yep. there was these amazing uh, shots as the Iraqis were fleeing Kuwait. They lit all the oil wells on fire. So there was these sort of stark deserts pockmarked with large black plumes of burning fires going off into the horizon. Just very kind of apocalyptic, but kind of this imagery was... Yep sit into your subconscious. And I think the language around the Arab Spring, although they're totally disparate issues, you know, and, and very naively I'm kind of linking them, yeah. I found it quite, um, even the term Arab Spring, quite fascinating. It just it just sparked a whole bunch of ideas and sort of emotions, I guess, in a way. And I wanted to do something sort of that visually responded to that. Looking back, like a whole lot of things that you've done in that, you can see it's like you've then expanded on them throughout your career and done them bigger and better and more interesting and but that original film at the time was pretty striking I thought yeah look I was really lucky it got a um a Vimeo staff pick which at the time like I think people were sort of following more singular sources so if it was on Vimeo or if it was on Motionographer you had a good chance of being seen by other people and I, I was really lucky because that's where uh, Patrick Clare saw it. He took an interest to it as well because I think he has a similar interest in um, sort of this intersection of politics and design. Yep. I like aesthetics for aesthetic's sake, but I think, you know, we all want to feel something or think something. And so if you can kind of link the world that we actually inhabit to the, the imagery that you're, you're putting together, it's far more likely to evoke a response. And, and you definitely can feel something in that short movie. It has feeling and it has depths to it which is really really good no i'm glad you like it i i feel like we're talking it up too much now but um oh, you, you know you i like it, that, it, it, it has you, some dna of things that i i wanted to go on and do and and have had a chance to do since so your style of shots your sort of cinematography style what was your inspiration in this project and has it changed much since then it's basically just ripping off Stanley Kubrick. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, symmetrical one-point perspective. Uh, I'm using the same gag still, you know, like linear camera moves, very minimal movement, more like paintings or something than um, complicated animations. What was your biggest learning making this animation spring? It's very easy to kind of rush ahead and start making things before you've kind of figured out what you want to do. And I, I think on that one, I... Yep. I didn't have a very kind of clear process, whereas now I would, I make animatics first now and then move on to kind of imagery, you know. Um, yep. But back then I was sort of trying to make finished shots and then put it together into a sequence. And it's just very wasteful and takes a lot longer, you know, whereas if you can kind of know what you want to make and make it very short animatic versions, very pared down things, and then work on your cut and your edit and the mood of things, that's a better way to approach it. We're now going to talk about Semi-Permanent. And listeners, if you haven't seen Semi-Permanent yet, uh, or you haven't seen it for a long time, it was released over five or six years ago, I'd really like you to go to the website at mastersofmotion.com.au and sit back and watch it. It's three minutes, 
It's an amazing piece of work. Uh, it's produced by one person and it's high quality and it will enrich in this conversation so much. So hit pause, go to mastersofmotion.com.au and play the video called Semi-Permanent. There's a big step up between spring and semi-permanent mm. in a lot of ways. Could you just briefly explain the story behind the semi-permanent project and what the actual animation is trying to achieve both emotionally and as a story? Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, semi-permanent's obviously a title sequence for opening of a design conference. It was exciting for me, as I said before, as a chance to kind of take some time off and focus on things that interested me. Okay. It was a, a heavy one month of production. The original cue for it came from these um, amazing images. I think it was a scientist called Danley Donford or something like that. But uh, he was a scientist researching whether um, astronauts could fall through space in the same way that cats can twist and move. So he has all these like tests of like bouncing up and down cats on a trampoline and then astronauts doing the same thing. But they're shot in like beautiful yeah. single light source paintings uh, in grainy black and white. And they're just these really quite stark, striking imagery. Yep. That was what the starting off point was like. I want to do something that is utilitarian like that, but has some emotion connected to it. Just explain in detail how long is it, how many shots roughly, and what it is, as quickly as you can. It's probably about three minutes. It shows the birth of an astronaut floating through space that goes on a long journey and sort of lands in a fertile green area. A number of shots, I don't know, maybe 50. And he's sort of floating through a city. Starts in a station that some large doors open that are... Stanley Kubrick. That one is, is explicitly um, a 2001 ripoff, but it's also a, a vaginal ning, perhaps. And there's an umbilical cord that he lets go, and then he uh, floats through a kind of yep. a housing block estate. That's cool. His home, his parents that he has to sort of let go of, and then he floats off to the giant hand, which is the artist. Yep. You know, you sort of approach this large shaped head, and then you fly through the eye, and then you're seeing all the, like, burnt in on the retina. You're seeing all these old classical paintings and, like, Caravaggio and so on. It's sort of like birth and then development and then they land in a kind of fertile new area. It's kind of cheesy if you explain it. That doesn't sound cheesy to me. What was the basis of the idea behind the visuals? I've sort of worked in isolation. I think a lot of artists, even if you're working in a team, you know, the creative process can be quite an isolating feeling. So I was sort of charting that trajectory. I get the idea. It's cool. All right. So what about the spacesuit? Was that the big part of like modeling the spacesuit and the textures and making it all look cool? Because it was a short time to make it, do one asset and try to get that asset looking good yep. and then reuse that asset as many possible ways. There's a few other things happening, but essentially it's 50 shots of an astronaut suit. That's cool. I looked at some comments on Vimeo at once and there's something in Russian... I translated it, and the guy was deeply offended. <laughs> he thought the um, the spacesuit looked like a nappy. So, uh, she's probably right, you know. But I was, never read anything off the internet like that's criticising. Oh well, no, that's why you don't put it on YouTube. But on Vimeo, everyone's usually nice on Vimeo, but not this guy. Cool. Just tell us how you edited the music together, and what did you learn in that period? <laughs> like trying to please yourself can be quite hard sometimes. Yeah. Audio and music is at least 50% of the experience, if not more. It has to be right. And it was really awkward because 
there was a chance to use like anything from Radiohead on this because that's cool. One of the radio artists was doing something semi-permanent, so they were like, "I'm sure we can get you rights for it." But and I love Radiohead, but it, which is incredibly arrogant of me not to use it. Just it a Radiohead song because it's just music is full, right? Like the the experience, yeah. the spectrum is full. Whereas when you're scoring something, it needs to leave space for the imagery to work. Yeah. So I kind of yeah. felt like I needed to have control of it. Okay. I've done a bit of music production over the years, so I kind of wanted to play around with that. It gives you a lot more control if you're not having to go between different departments. Yeah. You know, your left hand is doing the music and your right hand's doing the imagery. You can kind of balance them, basically. Yeah. The flexibility and the ability to do stuff when you're doing it yourself is is pretty great, you know. Mm. Being nimble and small has its drawbacks, <laughs> but it also can be quite um quite an efficient way to work. The other thing is is that when you did the audio track, mm. did you do it before you made the animation or after it? Did you score two or did you build it and then build the animation to it? I think I had a series of storyboards that I cut to an early version of the song and then I reworked the song as I reworked the storyboards into actual animation. Cool. What was the public response from the project? Did you see it at semi-permanent? People seemed to enjoy it, I guess, at the event. Did well online. Yeah. Pat liked it. He was talking at something permanent that year and he saw it for the first time there. That's cool. You know, when you work together quite closely with someone and then you um, you go off and do something separately, it's always a little um, delicate. So I was happy he enjoyed it. That sort of nicely introduces Pat. Segway. Yeah. So do you do it for yourself making the art or do you do it for the audience? Which brings you the most satisfaction? You're the only litmus test you can play with while you're working. You're kind of... There's a feedback loop in your head about well whether it's giving you a kind of the response that you want. Yeah. Obviously, when it's a project, you're trying to think about the audience and, and on a higher kind of more conscious level, you're, you're thinking, you know, how they're viewing things. But essentially, like the gut feeling at, when you're creating something, it's, it's, it's all about the ego. It's all with yourself, I guess. Which do you find more satisfying? The True Detective, which has been seen by millions, or the project that you did that you know only maybe a hundred thousand people like the semi-permanent i think they they both have different appeals you know i mean i i guess obviously true detective is is great because it is in the pop cultural zeitgeist you know like your parents know about it you know your friends know about it there's something nice about people actually knowing your work whereas yeah. semi-permanent you know appeals to a very sort of niche audience yeah I did heaps of sports openers and my grandma would never see them. But then when I did like a, a national TV show, which she watched, mm. she was like, your name's on the credit. And, <laughs> and that sort of gave me a little bit of satisfaction. My wife, she has sort of a casual disinterest to most of the work, particularly the video game stuff. She's like, eh, yeah, yeah, it looks fine. <laughs> you know, but I kind of like that. <laughs> How did you meet Pat? And is there a story behind that? Like most things via the internet these days, uh, it was the short film we talked about, Spring, that got a Vimeo staff pick. He saw that. He had that same interest in me, I think, in politics and design. He'd done some really interesting stuff um, with the ABC with uh, Hungry Beast. Hungry Beast. These great little explainer videos that kind of um, mix really cool design and ideas, basically. Yeah. 
done this thing called Stuxnet that was about this uh, computer virus that I think is in MoMA now in America. And that, that was like his big thing back then, yeah? Done lots of things, but I think that explaining stuff had really helped catapult him. Yeah. But yeah, I think he obviously saw something in spring, a kind of maybe similar interest, and uh, got me on board to work on the division. So you went in to work with him in his little office, or were you working separately back then? And what year was it? 2012, something like that. They had a little, uh, lovely little place in Chippendale. We moved offices a few times since then. Okay. I actually couldn't start straight away because I was working on some other job, but he was thankfully waited for me. And did you kick off a friendship or was it just a working relationship at the beginning? Well, me and Pat choose to not be in the same um, studio as much anymore. Not because we don't get along, but because we just end up having long-winded arguments about the ethics of drone warfare or uh, complications of AI or... Yeah. We've always had a lot to say to each other. I, I think he'd agree with that. You've had over 10 years together. I'd mm. like to explain your collaboration because you've created some awesome work together. Explain what he does and what you do. Changes here and there. Generally, the simplest way is that he comes up with amazing ideas and then I have to turn them into um, animations and build them. So he does treatments and storyboards. Are you involved in those things as well? These days, more and more, I'll do the storyboards. In the past, when he was elastic, he'd get like teams there to do the storyboards that would inform like earlier parts of the process. And earlier before that, he would do storyboards himself. Yep. The most amazing storyboards, I think, and really it all comes back to is he did the storyboards for, for True Detective. Yep. It, we, we've evolved over the years because the type of work we're doing has evolved. Like sometimes we'll solve a problem by just a bunch of reference imagery. Other times it'll be fully, you know, fleshed out boards, and you know, he's one of his great skills is he is incredibly eloquent when he's describing his ideas. So having him on a call, yep, very efficient at um at, at getting people on board and understanding what he wants to do. Does he present the initial ideas and get the jobs in, or do you do that together, or and then do you work with the client as you're building it and communicate with them? How does that sort of work? Essentially, he does the sales pitch. At times, I've been involved in that. Like, I used to go over to LA uh, once or twice a year. I mean, we went and met with um, Jonah Nolan for Westworld, and, you know, like, we'd take a bunch of boards and we'd talk through that. Yeah, I mean, he's, he's so good at it. It's sort of, it's, it's very much leave that to him to do. And when you're doing revisions, do they go through him, or sometimes do you talk to the client directly? I'll jump on calls occasionally, uh, or they'll record the feedback for me. Um, yep. You know, Pat sort of insulates that from me a little bit. Sometimes, sometimes not. It's the simplest question, answer to that question. That is a good, an- good way to answer it. <laughs> Basically, you're on the tools. Uh, does he get on the tools and do any animation, or do you, is that your sort of thing? He uh, opens up After Effects occasionally and draws little... Uh, white boxes and cubes to, to show me what the, how he wants the camera to move. But um, <laughs> He's got so many, um, so many projects running concurrently, it's, it's not efficient for him to be making things at the moment. I'm sure he cool. totally could if he needed to. So you worked at Elastic? Predominantly remotely, but yeah. What was it like to be working with a studio like Elastic? Elastic were great. Um, lots of really nice people. Um, they have a lot of lollies and uh, they make lunch for you every day. 
um, but you tend to stay a bit late. You know, it was a, a real pleasure to work, like to get to see from the inside how some of those things get made, what the teams are like, how teams work. You know, there's a big learning experience. Yep. I realized that I'd probably been a bit just like cynical or like overly negative thinking that, you know, the, the bigger companies would be terrifying. And in fact, they were just full of really nice people that were really laid back. I would go over there and um, work like for a month or two once a year. But the rest of the year, I'd work remotely back here. And it works quite well at the time difference between Australia and, and Los Angeles. Did you get to talk to a lot of other directors and things like that and sort of experience what they're doing? Yeah, there's there's a stable of directors at Elastic. There's more now. There were less back then, I believe. I found when I was in LA, we'd spend a lot of time chatting and then, you know, the directors go home and then you've got all the work to do in the evening. So I get a little bit more done if, we, um, if we're not in the same room. <laughs> cool. You talk about work a little bit, but you, you sort of ask about Los Angeles. Like my head was just getting around the idea of Los Angeles. It didn't make much sense to me. It felt like the whole city had been put in a blender, then poured back out again. It was sort of, there was no kind of logic to where things were. There's the people walking on the streets isn't really a thing. You know, you, you drive somewhere for 40 minutes. If that restaurant you can't get into, it's not like there's 20 others next door. You drive for another 40 minutes to somewhere else. So it was sort of like, sort of the opposite of a European city, I guess. Was there anything culturally different or funny happen when you were working in America? Yeah. I learned not to shake hands when you're being introduced with someone when there's 40 people in a room because you then go on and shake everybody's hand and it's really embarrassing. (laughs) Ah, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) All right, cool. Uh, I've never been to a meeting with 40 people in a room, but that's... Ah, they were just showing me around the floor and, you know, there's these (laughs) big, huge rooms with lots of computers and everyone's working and I was just awkwardly, yeah. um, yeah. (laughs) Very nice. We're just going to take a quick break now so I can get a glass of wine and we can thank the sponsors. That's cool. If you're looking for a fantastic mobile workstation that is designed for the entertainment and creative industries, whether it's for processing complex 3D or 2D workflows in design, multimedia, illustration, animation, CG or visual effects, MSI's high-end mobile laptops provide one of the best solutions available for creative professionals. Find out more at msi.com forward slash workstations. For over 27 years, StormFX has been providing the technology that powers the Australian and New Zealand creative industries. Whether your focus is in animation or VFX, We are experienced in providing the technology insights and the solutions you need to get through your challenges and realise your dreams. Maxon is a developer of professional 2D and 3D digital content creation solutions. Their award-winning Cinema 4D, Redshift 3D and Red Giant products have been used extensively for visual effects, motion graphics, and all types of visualization. Find out more about Maxon's products at maxon.net. So have you got your glass of whiskey? I do. Let's get back into it. Great. So what's your current role at Antibody, and what's your day-to-day like? 
I'm a partner of sorts with Antibody, creative partner, and a lot of the animation and uh, design. Day-to-day, currently working remotely. Pat's in Sydney. I'm in Melbourne. Yep. I come in bleary-eyed. We Skype, me and Pat. We'll either go review some work that we'd made the night before. Cool. Or talk about some food that we enjoyed or a film that we watched <laughs> or some client that we really like. <laughs> you know. Which is pretty cool. We'll go over the work that I'd posted the night before. And we might talk yep. in the day, but then generally I'm doing my thing. And if I need to, we'll chat. But then I'll, I'll post in the evening, basically, if I need to. So you're in cinema 4D most of the day? Yeah, that and After Effects are sort of the main tools, but um, we'll go into other things here and there. You know, sometimes they'll be working on sound, other times they'll be doing some reference pools or putting a document together or other bits and pieces. But essentially, cinema is sort of the workhorse. Could you describe your pipeline? What software, hardware and renderers that you use? Cinema is central. It's quite good in terms of a pipeline in that I can pull a lot of different plugins and other elements into that. Yeah. I use Marvelous Designer on something. Uh, I'll use Turbulence FD for like smoke and simulations. I'll been using 3D Coat quite a bit to do texturing. I'll use Fusion 360 for hard surface modeling. And your render? Octane is the one I'm using. I know there's other things out there like Redshift and so on, but I've become quite a fave with Octane and yeah. I, I, I love it. Like it, it's sort of a love-hate relationship because it, it can be finicky at times and it you know crashes your computer and it's not that friendly with Macs and all this kind of stuff. But um, it's sort of aptly named if you imagine a, um, a big hot rod car. <laughs> it's kind of really good at going one direction very fast, yeah. but it needs a bit of uh, love if you're trying to steer it. They're pushing the Mac stuff at the moment, Octane, aren't they? They have released Octane X, but it is you know, limited to the newer yeah. Mac systems. It's currently not offering much for me at this point, so I'm, I'm staying with the previous versions that you could run on High Sierra. And are you not interested in Redshift? Maybe I'm getting old and lazy, but like I just uh, there's no killer feature in there that makes me want to learn a new thing. What do you like about Octane? There's a certain simplicity to Octane, uh, I guess, in the unbiased quality of it. That things don't flicker. It has the denoiser. There's lots of things in it that make it quite efficient tool for getting imagery down. I, I don't. I don't want to care about that stuff. I, you know, it's just the quickest shortcut to get from um, an idea to an image. Cool. Alrighty. If you could tell us the difference between working on, say, advertising work, game cinematics, compare them to opening titles. They're all interesting in their own ways. Uh, advertising um, has its own unique set of challenges. Like there's often a lot more stakeholders involved, so you're needing to kind of bring a lot more people on board with an idea, yeah. which can be challenging. There's a lot more kind of interaction. Yep. I mean, it's great, though, in a way, because, you know, you constantly have people checking in with you and kind of keeping you on your toes, yeah. whereas... TV is a certain sense of freedom, which is is lovely for us. And you can explore darker cultural themes, I guess. The thing that's really exciting about that is you working with like some really amazing minds. These are people that make the television shows. So, Are the key people heavily involved or are they busy doing other things? I would have thought that, but generally, maybe it's just US television. They're very involved. Like, yeah. they'd let us go do our thing, but, like, they seem to really care what we're making. 
Yeah. It's never it's never indifferent, you know. So yeah, I, I guess they see it as having potential. Yeah. If they weren't involved and didn't care, they probably just wouldn't have titles. If that makes yeah, sense, yeah, I, I would say that all my titles, the people pretty much care about them. Hmm. So, and they're always trying to push the boundaries of the budget and what you can do. So, hmm. yeah, it's a good point. Anything you can do to help them tell their story, they're going to love, and they're not they're not fussed about the details as much because they're not necessarily trying to please their boss or somebody else. You, as long as you're on the same page, it's, yeah. it's, they give you a lot of trust, and that's that's a wonderful thing. You can be bold and you can take risks. And with the gaming automatics, mm. how do they compare to the opening titles? Gaming's not dissimilar, actually. Video game stuff is, you know, it's not quite like that, but it, it, it's similar. You know, you're often working with people that make video games, you know, like yeah. the same as a TV show maker. They, anything you can do to help them encapsulate and tell that story and evoke something, they're going to love you for it. Cool. And they're, they're hands-off a lot of the time. But what was the most enjoyable video game project you worked on? Halo was pretty exciting. Like, I remember when I was young watching this, I think it was an Apple keynote, they had this video of the first Halo game and it was this really complicated gameplay where they'd like land on this planet and run around, do some things and then get picked up and it was riffing off aliens, I think. That really excited me about the kind of the sandbox quality of it. And so, yeah, I'd played video games a lot when I was younger and a chance to work on building um, the Master Chief's suit. An honour to give him that chance to do that. Any other interesting games? Far Cry 6 was really fun because it was a really kind of bold graphical style. You yeah. have these turquoise and really burny hot reds in this sort of yeah. Havana-like landscape and it, lots of like transitions. It was sort of an evolution on the work we'd done for the Night Manager, which is you have one thing turning into another, turning into another. That was quite challenging, but quite fun. Well, I would say that my son would prefer your gaming work over your HBO work. Video games, you know, far bigger industry and far more viewers. <laughs> so, you know, it's sort of this, this iceberg that no one realises how large it is. Yeah. Me and my son are listening to Ready Player One, the audio book. Oh, okay. Yeah, that'd be fun. And it's interesting to see them relive in the 80s and we're also watching the movies as well. So we watched War Games the other day, all the stuff they talk about. I read Ready Player One because it was getting a lot of buzz in the film world before it came out. You know, Spielberg's big thing and then... Yeah, and I I liked it for the... It was sort of an adulterated nostalgia. I hadn't seen War Games, but I watched War Games on, on its recommendation as well. It was fun. Yeah, cool. Well, my son... Did he like it? Did, did the nostalgia make any sense to him? Uh, not really, but he loves the gaming and the idea of being inside a world like the Oasis, which he's trying to presently do in Minecraft. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So have you got a piece of advertising work that you think satisfied you a lot? We got to do some quite cool stuff uh, with Louis Vuitton, which was a bit of a you know, right-angle turn for us. But we're using similar aesthetics, I guess, but just adapting that to work for fashion. Um, it's probably not typical advertising work as we weren't working through an agency or anything, but we were doing promos for Louis Vuitton and, you know, we got to fly to Paris and shoot some supermodels in a really expensive hotel. And often you, when you're just working on your computer and you're distant from things, you can kind of um, not quite see the scale of, of what's happening and what you're working on. So it's, it's always great being connected to it. And do you think that's why you diversify into the different areas of cinematic gaming and sort of title work is because you got different budgets and you can sort of financially 
be better off if you're doing a, a more diverse range? I'm sure there's a lot of like good business sense in diversifying. I think it's also just creatively it's interesting to keep renewing challenges and doing things in different areas because they pose different questions and problems. So things don't feel stale. I always found that I did lots of opening titles. Like I've done over 40 in my career, but the advertising work and the other work really paid the bills. I think it's a bit of a truism, yes. It can be that the more creative, uh, interesting jobs are not necessarily the, the better remunerated ones. What was the experience like of actually doing True Detective? Well, my first memory was I was working on something else and I saw Pat laying out some frames uh, sitting next to me. Um, this is back when we used to work together. Yeah. I thought they looked very nice. And I was sort of quietly excited and asking questions. Um, was it an intense project? Yeah, it, it was. Partly from internal self-pressure yep. because, you know, you just wanted it to be good and you didn't know what good meant really at that point. We, we involved some other people helping to make shots here and there as well. Um, like Pat DC helped out in a few shots and I think uh, Breeder as well. So what was your sort of main challenge on the project? Well, for me, the challenge was translating it from these lovely boards into something that was going to work as a sequence that was animated that had motion to it. Yep. And until you do that, I couldn't relax, basically, because I was stressed about whether it was going to work. And there's, there's always a point in a job where you're like, oh, that's it. That's the answer. It's going to work. It's going to be okay. And I think up until that point, it was stressful. What were some of the small detailed challenges? There's a lot of, like, grit and texture that just floats uh, in sort of Z-space in the camera. And weirdly, there's a certain art to kind of, like, placing all the grit and texture. It's all very much like, you know, that little bit needs to be there or that's moving in the wrong area, that should be moved over there. How did you get the camera movement working effectively? We did some uh, photogrammetry stuff, which is very simple geometry, and you project those imagery back onto it, and then you have to cut out all the um, occluded areas, and you can get a, basically a minimal camera move out of it. But it really does add this sort of dimensionality to it, but it's weird, which kind of works for this, because it's, it's almost dreamlike. It doesn't feel like footage, but it doesn't feel like a still sort of in this lovely halfway land between the two. Cool. And how did it affect your career and how did it affect you as a person? <laughs> oh, yeah, no, no it's, it's, it, no, it's an interesting question. Well, obviously, you know, it went well. We won an Emmy for it. That was very helpful for opening up doors and giving you a chance to do other things. Obviously, it would improve your marketing, but personally... Personally, it was sort of interesting because you kind of, there was a slightly weird deflating quality after, you know, we were very excited and then it was sort of deflating. It's like, well, what do you do now? Like, what do, you know, you've done this thing and nothing's, nothing's any different. You still go to work every day, you know, like, I don't want to go too into the psychology of this, but like, you know, you've got a little <laughs> chip on your shoulder, you've got something to prove, you know, you're kind of a frustrated artist. You feel like you have a mountain to climb. It's unequivocally kind of you've done reasonably well when you've done something like that. Yep. You just got to go find another challenge, I guess. So was the second season the next challenge? Doing the second season was kind of terrifying, I found. That one didn't seem to have as much impact. You know, I really liked what we did for the second season. I yep. think it was a great show. Um, it just, it 
didn't capture the um, the broader community as much as the first did. How did it feel when you accepted that Emmy? Weird. It's very weird. Um, <laughs> going to the Emmys was fun, but strange. It's like hyper fancy and lovely, and but also like in a sports stadium, you know. And you so you can order a martini, but it will come in a plastic cup and. You know, I, I I was still adjusting to America, you know, like my, my small awkward sort of small chat just went down like a lead balloon there a lot of the time. And yeah, it was really exciting. I got to like meet some really interesting people. Um, I ran into Morgan Freeman after the event and... Uh, you ran into God. Yeah, ran into God and had this sort of awkward but fun chat with him. And yeah, it was a total fanboy thing. Yeah, so all that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that is great. And, and the second Emmy... Yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. I wasn't expecting to win that. I had sort of chilled out for the night because it was like, oh, it's clearly going to so-and-so. Yeah. Really lucky to get two. And it's nice to get two because you're like, maybe it wasn't totally a fluke. It is nice. And how did it feel to work on material from the writer of Blade Runner and Total Recall and all those classic sci-fi stories? I love Philip K. Dick, so again, that's another bucket list thing is to, to work on something to do with Philip K. Dick. Is, it was really exciting. Cool. For me, the impact of High Castle as a show and an opener had more than True Detective. It really touched me as a person. Like, it oh, made really? Me okay. feel emotional. You know, that it was the soundtrack mixed with the visuals. I never responded that well to the, um, what's the song again? Not Flirtily. Um, but a lot of people have said it, it's really moving for them and they, they find it very haunting. It's from um, Sound of Music or something, isn't it? It is from The Sound of Music, mm. but it was written by two Americans for The Sound of Music. It's not a... Uh, traditional folk song. It's not a traditional song at all, uh, which is pretty cool and sort of matches the opener as well. Mm, yeah, clever. An alternate version, alternate history. Yeah, we're going to move on now to the final section where we're going to discuss three of your projects in detail. Yeah, okay. The Crown, Westworld, and Man in a High Castle. Mm-hmm. Just one second, I'm just going to say something. Sure. Hello, listeners. I recommend at this point you go to mastersofmotion.com and watch the three opening titles in detail to refresh your memory. All right, you ready to go? Sure. First one is The Crown. So could you explain the pitching project for The Crown and what you presented and how that sort of went? There was an initial pitch process that I wasn't involved in, which was one, but that didn't end up really being what we did. Sometimes what happens is you might pitch something and then you just do something totally different anyway. I can't remember exactly why, but it kind of evolved into something else. There's imagery of a crown in the original pitch concept, but it doesn't look anything like what we did because I did starboards in a way for that, but sort of subsequent to the original starboards. When you have a storyboard artist, they can make some beautiful frames, but it doesn't necessarily translate into animation because they're using very different tools. What we ended up doing was building the asset of the, the crown and then doing a lot of CG moving cameras around. I ended up rendering like, I don't know, a few hundred different angles and different styles and then from that, we started to pull out a story because, you know, when you start to look at different structures of the crown, you start to say, well, this looks like a cage, this shot, and this looks like some primordial tar pits. And there's this whole elemental story that's going on about the crown, which is that, you know, like, 
if you take it literally, she's ordained by God. You know, like this is a a weight on on her shoulders, and it has a timeless elemental kind of quality to it. It's kind of terrifying, and so we found that by just exploring the crown in a very kind of simple way, you could start to eke out all these ideas and imagery from it that was quite evocative. Yeah, and we could do it in a way because we we're using the same tools to make these style frames to how we would then go on to do production and animation. It was a, a very seamless process. Yeah, the crown's all one shot of a crown. That's correct, yeah? Well, to a degree. It's essentially the construction of the crown from elemental earth from before time in a sort of dreamlike quality. Like we start with kind of raw elements and rock for just a few shots coming out of the dark and then we're seeing kind of gold melting and growing in kind of organic ways and then we're seeing form and shape and, you know, only at the very end you start to get like jewels or anything. The interesting thing about that is if you ask people, have you seen the crown in the title sequence, they're like, yeah, yeah, Yeah. you see the full crown. But you never actually see the full crown. You only see details and it just builds up a picture of this sort of godlike image, you know, this structure. What was the process of developing that crown? I didn't do the base model for that. Um, we had an artist at Elastic do that. Yep. And, it, you know, it was a wonderful model, but what we found was that, you know, you kind of have to be quite accurate. And so I found without holes behind every single jewel, the light doesn't work. The jewels don't work. Okay. Went off and did a bit more study about, like, well how are jewels placed into crowns because they just look dull in the way a diamond you have to have the light come bouncing through the back through the point of it and so that it refracts through so i sort of restructured a lot of the the models so that it was physically accurate so that you would get this bounce light and that you would get the little bits of metal holding the, the um each thing in a place it was quite challenging because they're incredibly dense objects by that point you've got thousands and thousands of jewels you know and they're all high resolution so um yeah it was rendering complexity the way that jewels work yeah i had to figure out some sort of better pipelines for managing that amount of geo back then on the tools that we had at the time how did the lighting and the texturing like what was your process when you were putting together lighting and texturing we did a lot of renders where everything was sort of brighter and happier and more expensive looking okay the the kind of stuff that you would do for like high-end luxury goods I guess I could do that kind of stuff, but it, it, it didn't hit any emotion. It just felt a bit kind of unemotional, I guess. And so we shifted in back into, as often the case, into a, a darker, more kind of single-lit, Caravaggio-esque, single-light-source-type lighting environment. It's a sense of cheat in that you can hide a lot in the shadows. Yeah. There's this theory I have where your brain does a kind of subconscious breakdown of an image when it sees it. And if it has to do a little bit of work, it makes the image more interesting. So for example, like if you have to take a shot of the moon, a fully lit moon, it's not as interesting as if you have just a rim lit moon where maybe it's quite bright white and then you have total shadow on one side and you don't even see the edge of the the, the moon, but you get the bump that would run along the, the gap between the shadow and the light and that just that bump, you will imagine the whole texture of the rest of that surface. That kind of little cognitive background, subconscious work your brain has to do makes an image more interesting. So it's something we're always doing is like, is pacing the understanding of an image. Yeah. 
you want people just to have kind of figured out what they're looking at before you move on to the next image. You don't want it to be obvious at the first frame. It was an excellent description, and I get what you're trying to say. I've been trying to formulate my thoughts on that for uh. a while because <laughs> you do things and you don't necessarily know why you're doing them, but why am I making these decisions? Yeah. What's driving them? And you try to break it down. Yeah, it's, it's interesting trying to figure out why you think things work. What was your approval process like and your back and forth with the client around making that opener? They pushed us into the more experimental kind of bleak, less figurative stuff. I think at times we had um, silhouettes of the queen reflected in, in jewels and so on, and they didn't feel that was necessary. Again, a perfect example of like how a client can really elevate the work because they have similar goals to you. They're, they're on your side. Cool. All right. We're now going to move on to Westworld. Sure. You won Westworld in a pitch? Again, it was not dissimilar to The Crown in that he did an initial treatment and some starboards that looked really cool. There was lots of interesting ideas in them. We ended up sort of diverging from that. Really started using Lance at that point, which is our um, like sketch artist, like just drawing out frames, you know, not styled. Yeah. He's wonderful at like putting together ideas really efficiently with Pat. So I think they put together a bunch of stuff. Yep. Jonah's really hands-on, Jonah and Lisa, who are the showrunners, who's Christopher Nolan's brother, if you're curious. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Him and Pat went a lot on basically what the sort of symbolic story points needed to be, but we hadn't quite sort of nailed down the aesthetic. So when I came on board... I was building out an animatic, but then trying to figure out a look for these things. And so I kind of got into this yep. sort of slightly terrifying white flesh type materials and thin underlit sort of, again, simple lighting, things hidden in shadow aesthetic. It sort of reminded me of the Bjork video, you know, the two people dancing. All, all is full of love. It was a big, um, big influence. I think we uh, even referenced that. In the pitch document, we were talking about that, that moment. Yeah, it, it's um, Chris Cunningham's a big influence on a lot of people and uh, it was shameless in a way, but I, I hope we elevated it or, you know, evolved it into a different area, different space. Everyone's sort of stepping up off everyone else. Mm. That's just the way that art works. It is. With those images, what was the process like in developing them to the point where they were finished? Well, we didn't have much time. <laughs> I was in LA for it and I worked 36 days straight, if I remember correctly, because I was grumpy about it and I was there till like, you know, 12 every night. At the time it was a bit painful, but it was probably worth it in the long run, I think. Yep. There was lots of things I had to figure out, like there was animation that was going on, like rigging of hands and, and how to animate a horse and how to do like an eye iris closing and all these kind of quite tricky technical things that I hadn't approached before. So there was a lot of learning in that. Lots of shots had different problems, different challenges. There was a team on this project? The initial storyboard team, then there were people. Um, we had some modelers help us out on that. They built some of the structures. I did a bit of the modeling as well. Yep. We had two amazing ZBrush modelers. Just trying to remember the names. It was a few years ago. Yep. Jose and Jessica. There were a few other people as well, but that was the main team that did the um, fleshy stuff. So like the horse and the hand, they would sort of meld bone and muscles and stuff. How did you get the timing of the shots? 
Uh, I was editing animatics with Pat was how we, we put it together. And did you have the music first? We had this amazing song, which I won't mention, that was like a pop song that was really good to work to but wasn't going to get cleared. But then we were really lucky to get Ramin, oh, uh, the um, wow. music composer who did Game of Thrones, to score it for us. It was this great bit where they um, they sent us footage of him playing the main refrain the, for the main title. And so we had this top-down footage of him playing the notes for us. Yep. So we had an animation reference, which was kind of nice meta kind of weird thing of like you're trying to recreate what it would look like for a robot to try to recreate a human. Yeah, that's cool. Did they edit out all the storyboards and shots in the process and get it locked down to the exact shots you wanted to model and, and finish before you started the final run of modeling and lighting and texturing? Nothing's that that efficient or neat or simple. Yeah. Like to some degree, yes. I think we were still fucking around with the uh, storyboard two days before delivery, but we'd been making other shots. So you just have to start making things because you're not going to get it done if you wait for everything to be approved. Sounds a bit stressful. Me, me and Pat have, have had many arguments about this over the years where I'm like, well, if you could just get the uh, animatic approved, I'll move on to production. And he's like... No, it's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> no one's approving anything. <laughs> yeah. I always pressured to get that animatic approved. Timing, edit, like once you got that approved, it'll give you the flexibility to do a much better job and invest more time in the actual creation of the animation. I, I'm, I like 90% agree with you. Yeah, there's 10% of me. It's like, look, there might be some caveats to that, but directors never approve things unless they're absolutely forced to because for them they're just signing away their chance to change things and they'll never do that willingly yeah well i always pointed at the budget and running over as my limiting them to change things yeah I and mean, that can work but it's uh, yeah I, I think it's often it's just time you know it's like well you when do you want your show to go out <laughs> That's the best deadline to have a date that you got to deliver and then that keeps them on budget and stops them making ridiculous decisions. I do like that about TV, yeah, is that usually it's a very clear deadline and it's like, yeah, it's, you have to work really hard to get to it, but it's, um, it's better than a job that would, you know, if you can tweak it forever, they will tweak it forever. Can you tell us about the colour palette of the opener and is contrast an important part in the storytelling process? It's the difference between a title sequence and, you know, film or something is that you have a more reduced palette. Yeah. It makes it work in a more design... A design language is when you, you know, you don't add a whole bunch of random colours. You try to keep it in a, in a very um, pared-back, simple world. We had organic and we had um, non-organic and, and then we had a sort of a lighting style. I think the thing, the variance you want to keep is that it, it fluctuates... Within that, you're inversing things. So suddenly it might be a very bright scene with a small amount of dark. Then you have a lot of dark with a small amount of light. And then you have sort of balance shots. Yeah. So you're trying to keep the um, variety running through it, but also minimizing what you use. And do you get a lot of corrections on the lighting and texturing? Or is it more about the modeling? Octane was quite interesting with Pat because we can um, start to interactively move the lights around yep you know you're just iterating a thousand times quicker that was the fundamental difference with octane and previous rendering engines is that you can you don't have to move it hit render wait for the image and go so mm. you, it's not absolutely instant but you can move lights around and get a pretty close to real-time feedback 
so does Pat sit in on that? Does it, do you like get it going, get it set up, and then bring him over and say, "What do you reckon?" On some shots, so for example, there was this this lover's shot where they're they're reaching in for an embrace and a kiss, and he had a very clear idea in his head of the light basically illuminating what was flesh, and as the light fell off, the flesh fell off into bone basically. Yeah, and I remember we, us going back and forth a lot on that, and you know, doing that together. By other times, I think we've worked together quite a long time. We kind of have a shared shorthand of things that we both like. He doesn't necessarily always get that involved. And are you taking individual shots to the client and presenting them, or are you like doing a presentation as a? This is the whole sequence. It changes. It's totally different per job. But I remember on Westworld, we um, we hadn't really established the aesthetic yet. And so I did a whole bunch of test renders and then did a whole new set. They were a little more literal before, um, but then we moved to... Um, I did this one of the horse and I just put one strip light under the horse. I thought that looks quite cool. Yeah. We weren't sure. I was like, well, this feels a bit kind of bleak and heavy and intense and scary and stuff. But Jonah saw it and he was like, yo, this is it. Fucking love this. This is fucking great. Something like that, you know. That's a very bad, bad impersonation of him. He sounds, you know, a lot more eloquent than that. But um, he really liked it, and and that was that was a nice moment. And what was the biggest challenge on that project? Time was really tight. Time to get it done. Like it was a lot more ambitious than a lot of other things we'd done. I did it straight after semi-permanent, so there was like, oh, you did that in like four weeks. Surely you can do this. But it was like, you're doing that by yourself. <laughs> Semi-permanent had no clients and it had basically one asset shot well. Yeah. Like Pat had said, oh, you can do this kind of stuff. That's cool. How can we use that? And now I'm going to expect that level out of everything. So, but it was like every shot had different elements in it, you know, and then was full of client feedback and revisions. So it was really quite a lot, lot harder. And do you think that you and Pat sort of aspire each other on to do better work? Yeah, we've had a pretty fruitful uh, working relationship over the years. I think, I like sometimes I'll do some um, some work to to piss him off. Sometimes I'll do it to impress him. You know, it's uh, we're a bit like a married couple. Cool. Alrighty, we're doing the revisions for the different shows, mm. making season two and season three. Did you find them interesting and fulfilling? And what were the challenges on? It was good actually in Westworld because it was it's it's not a walk in the park like Jonah really cares about everything that we were doing and so he really would um each season really get into it and you know we'd go back to drawing port a few times and keep developing ideas it's nice because you don't quite have the same fear about like well we don't have to establish a whole new aesthetic you know and so you're getting a bit more time to kind of go back into some of those details and refine things yeah i was never that happy with the animation of the hands in the first season playing the piano so we kind of reworked them slightly to have a better animation quality. A Melbourne guy helped us out a little bit on this uh, guy called Sava. Yeah, you know Sava. Yeah, you're getting the best guy. Yeah, I had Sava and then just like every day I'd be like, make it more realistic, keep working those hands, you know. We both tinkered with this piano playing animation for ages. Yeah. So we were just trying to make it a little bit better, but then like I found all this stuff as it came out, like people were reading into the symbolism of what the uh, new hands meant and like that it's like... The, the hosts have evolved, they're getting better. <laughs> like, it's kind of like, it's funny, you realise that the fans care about this stuff and they, they'll pick out details. And with the animation, were you looking at reference? I bought like a leap motion thing, I think it was called, which lets you do finger hand movement that was not useful. 
<laughs> I learned how to play it myself and then record that. The tricky thing with like finger animations on keyboards is that like they keep fluctuating be- between being stuck to another object and being informed by that's movement, like i.e. when the finger's stuck down on the key and it's it's not moving but the hand's moving and then being free from that and that's moving with the hand and then each finger's doing that and there's so much like secondary animation as each finger goes down all the other fingers sort of go up in their own particular way it's it's like i c- cannot explain how many keyframes you, you need to have for it to feel anything close to realistic yeah it was just brute force Sounds challenging and frustrating, and it's a super key shot. It is the key shot, really, of the openers. Yeah. There's a few central themes that we keep each season. It's mainly, yes, the piano playing. Did you feel like you were improving at each time? The novelty is always for the first season, even if some things aren't done as well. Yeah. I'd like to think we're improving, but then also you realise that whether that bit of animation is as, as good as it could be or not, is for a lot of people so neither here nor there you know like there are broader things that are are more important the visuals on the last one looking at them as stills i was like i felt i really liked them they were clean and nice and i felt a step up well i'm glad you like yeah i mean the eagle and and you know icarus and all that um those motifs yeah were fun are you running at animals yeah look that i think that's been discussed actually (laughs) This, like, how many iconic American animals do you have left? <laughs> cool. I just want to talk about the man in the high castle now. Great. You got to work with the guys from Scott Free. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? I think Ridley uh, sent Pat a note uh, after it aired. Um, wow. About him enjoying. It. I think it's got to be a bucket list. Is. Uh, Really, Scott, looking at and enjoying your work. Yeah, absolutely. That's pretty cool. So with the man in the high castle, Hmm. basically you had some really well-known statues and you had some projection sort of work happening. Hmm. What was the biggest challenge making the statues feel good and the projection work well and sort of mingling that all together to create something that tells the story? This is something actually we'd been wanting to do for a long time. Like a lot of the things we do is juxtapositioning. It's just taking two different ideas and ramming them together. You know, True Detective using double exposure. Here we're using projections. American Gods, you know, we're taking different random cultural ideas and sculptures and putting them together. Yep. Yeah, it's just a, a great way to create something new is to, to ram things together. And he'd really want to do projections. And like, they look lovely, but like, they're not an easy thing to do computationally in CG, I guess. And... Up until that point, uh, I've been trying to solve it, I think, in V-Ray. It's just like when you 20 minutes a frame or something, and it's kind of working, kind of not. You're kind of like, I don't know if this is... But so this was the first job I think I did in Octane. Yep. And this is like using a camera. This is like filming. And essentially, I'm just a frustrated filmmaker, really. I just want to go make feature films or something. Yeah. Pat is similar in the sense, uh, has ambitions in that area. Well, you and Pat should just start writing. Start writing. Well, watch this space. There might be some... Um, we might be making some things for us. We'll let you know when we do. That's all uh, under wraps. Cool. Tell us about the compositing process. It's all in camera in a sense, in that we create the element and then set up a projector and then project that in CG. So you, what makes those images interesting is the way that they get distorted and then the way that the light 
rebounds and bounces around. So you get the, the second tree diffuse lights, the global illumination, I guess, from the harsh projection, which if you just try to do fake in comp or in other kind of like by just doing separate layers and putting them together, it won't work. It doesn't look right. Yeah. You'd build out an animation of whatever it was you're projecting. I found that you tend to at first add too much animation or flicker or something to the projected element and then you realize it's sort of less is more. They really didn't need to do too much. Just a minimal bit of movement was enough. Did Pat come up with all the ideas of laying out like the plane falling out of the sky and the paratroopers like going past the eye and... Yeah, like tears. Yeah, yeah. Totally the ideas are, yeah, are all Pat's. Yeah. I think they're really interesting, provocative images if you actually think about them. Like having the Nazi eagle displayed across the American bald eagle, you can interpret that many ways, you know, like, and I think that's open to interpretation. Is It's interesting from the plot point. It's interesting about what maybe this book is talking about philosophically, about how you can perceive things in different ways. But it's also visually, yeah, it's just kind of um, this very potent imagery. And I think that's the thing why it's always been interesting for us to work in politics and design is like it's not purely aesthetics. Like aesthetics have so much more resonance when they link to things that are real in the world, you know, mean things to people. Okay. Yeah, and one of the things we're always trying to do is disrupt faces. So like, yeah, the strip across the... Uh, Statue of Liberty, she's blinded. It's quite interesting. And, and the, the tears rolling down the um, Washington, I think. Paratroopers. Yeah, like there's lots of interesting ideas in, in, in putting those two images together. When you composited it all together, you make it all the imagery, everything that's in there. You didn't use any stock film of the plane crashing or anything? Uh, plane crashing's all CG. Yeah. Paratroopers, I think, is like some still photos and then maybe some footage and then maybe a few other things. And the maps, mm. is that done like in 3D or is that done like composite or how did you get those like big map of America happening? Yeah, all of that is 3D, displacement maps. Uh, that was something that actually got discussed quite a bit because I don't sure it's that clearly defined in the book. Yep the three parts of America are, so it needed to go back and forth a bit. Yeah, we refined that many times. I was just making up some sort of map-style aesthetics and then trying to riff on um, sort of a mix between, like, old 1950s kind of propaganda films uh, for, like, you know, the expanding arrows of the Nazi Reich type stuff that you get from, like, Dad's Army or something, but then also sort of elevate it to kind of a modern design aesthetic and try and find the design aesthetic behind a lot of the military um, imagery at the time. How do you, like, you decided to do all these in 3D, which is obviously slower than comping them in After Effects, but it gets you a better result. How do you satisfy the client and keep the project on budget when you're going for such high-end visuals? This was done through Elastic, so it's a more complicated setup. But I assume what the, the thinking is, is like, well, this is the number of people we've got and they can work on that till the show comes out. That's a good way to work. And that's the budget. It's, it's, it's that simple. So we, we, you just try to make it as best as you can within that time. I think sometimes people aren't, you know, making a profit out of titles, you know, but they hope that the work gets exposure and, you know, there's some advertising work or things with larger budgets get involved. Uh, it's a massive exposure, but I suppose the last thing I wanted to chat with you about was the audio track, which was powerful and provocative. Did you have that track? Was that inspiring you at the beginning? Did you edit with it? 80% of the time, the one thing that's really frustrating is you often only get 
sort of a finalised bit of music because it's being made concurrently after you've sort of made the titles. So you work to yep. a temp track of some sort. And it's just not that simple swapping in a new song, even if it's the same beat. There's all these other restrictions, like DGA restrictions on how long credits need to be up for. Yep. Technically, like... It should be up for two seconds, for example. Yep. If every card has to have a credit on it and they all have to be up for two seconds, if your song has a different BPM, not cutting of the beats of the music is really awkward. Yeah, It's a total jigsaw. The editing is more defined by DGA rules and um, the number of credits than it is necessarily just creative. So the DGA is like the union rules of what you're supposed to get. It's Directors Guild Association. They have a lot of stipulations so that people get the proper credit um, on things. Yep. So you can't just like do a quick scroll of credits or something, but yeah. Cool. So the audio, it, it wasn't that much of a big of an impact in making the opener. Look, I mean, I think you tweak and work with things when they come through, but yeah. they're working to your visuals as well. So they you might be inadvertently influencing the music, even if you don't know that the composer's working to it. It'd be nice to start with the music, but it's not always the case. If you go back to the start of your career, what advice would you give to yourself? I'm reasonably happy with the way it's worked out. You sort of feel like I wouldn't want to tinker with it. Like I, I'd like to, to work less and have other facets of my life focus on those a little bit. But So a bit more balanced. A bit more balanced, yeah. But then, you know, if you did that, then you might, <laughs> you might have lost interest earlier on and gone on and done something else. So... I think like doing the work to try to be more conscious about what you're doing and what you're making, like actually to, because I think I used to have an attitude of just sort of going from the gut and that's useful, but I think it's changed and evolved a little bit to be a bit more like, I think a little bit more about what I'm doing and that has actually in a way added some more interest to it in that it's a different type of artistic process, but I think that that's probably a better approach. Well, the gut is like all your experiences put into a feeling. So you're actually just referring to your previous experience. True, yeah, yeah. It's just it, it's worthwhile being generous and trying to think about how it will um, be perceived. You can add some nuance to things, you know. Yeah. Maybe, yeah, not running into making things, like holding off a little bit before starting a project, letting the ideas percolate a little bit before you start trying to just get stuff down, like to not rush for that dopamine hit you get when you start making images that you think are okay to to hold that off a little bit cool good answer the final question what would you like to do in the future i would like to tell some stories really and to make our own content not sure how that will be but essentially we're making a lot of stuff around television and around film it would be lovely to to move into those things cool all right i think that's a nice place to end it Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Appreciate it. It was good. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. You can find out more about Raoul Marx at raoulmarx.com or antibody.tv. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.
nächste Saison noch schön. Bye, bye.